Hi, I'm Cassandra Siebels, the 2022-2023 president of the Junior League of Atlanta, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of JLA Inside Out, stories from inside and outside of the Junior League of Atlanta. I'm excited to be joined today by Amy Ard from Motherhood Beyond Bars. Hey, Amy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So maybe we could start for those of us, including myself, who don't really know, what is Motherhood Beyond Bars? We are a statewide nonprofit organization. We support pregnant, incarcerated people and the infants that they give birth to and are separated from right after birth. We um, have, I think, three main goals. Our first goal is to make sure that infants born to women in prison have the physical things that they need to be safe in the world. And that includes a car seat when they leave the hospital, a safe place to sleep at home. And importantly, we send all of these infants a lifetime supply of diapers. The second goal that we have is to keep these infants out of the foster care system and with a family member. So almost all women who deliver a child in prison identify a family member or friend to pick up the baby at the hospital But a lot of these people live well under the federal poverty limit and taking this new baby into their lives really represents a huge financial challenge. So we want to lessen the impacts of of that in order to keep the baby with family members and out of the system. And then finally, we want to reduce recidivism rates for women and reunify families. We know that one of the most important ways that you can lower recidivism rates for anybody in prison is to make sure that they have a strong family connection on the outside. And for women who are mothers, this connection is incredibly important and incredibly hard to do because every form of communication when you are in prison costs money. So we provide a lot of supports for women in prison to make sure that they stay connected to their children and their caregivers. How big of an issue is this in the state of Georgia? You know, how how many babies are born in the prison system? On average, in the Georgia prison system, there are about 50 babies born every year. Uh, We've seen that number go down a little bit in COVID, which sounds like something to celebrate and is if we didn't think that they were having babies in other places like jails. One of the problems in Georgia is that we don't know how many pregnant women are in jail. We don't count that data. We don't collect that data. And we know that during COVID, the wheels of justice turned very slowly and that a lot of people were stuck in jails across the state not and did not get moved into the prison system. So we anticipate that now that the court systems are coming back on track pretty much full steam, those numbers in the prison system will start to pick up. We can find the pregnant people in the Georgia prison system. We have a much more difficult time tracking where pregnant women are in jails. And sometimes they find us or family members find us and we enroll them in our program. But it's much, much more difficult. And for someone who might not be as familiar with the Georgia legal system as you are, what's the difference between jail and prison? That's a great question. Jails are where someone goes when they're awaiting sentencing. So it is if you get arrested for stealing a car, they catch you in the act and the police pick you up take you out of the car that you stole and put you in jail, awaiting your hearing. For a lot of people, they have the opportunity then to bond out if they're, they have the money or their family members have the money to pay for them to get out of jail while, while they await their day in court. But for a lot of people in Georgia, they don't have that money. And so they sit in jail, um, presumed innocent, as is the case for our, our criminal legal system, you are presumed innocent. 
but that's where they stay. And shockingly, we have people that spend years in jail waiting for their day in court. When you get before the judge or you get before the jury and you are sentenced, they say, yep, you did steal that car that we caught you in. Then you are sentenced to the state prison system. If the if the law that you broke was a state law, um, if the law that you broke was a federal law, you might go into the federal uh, prison system. The majority of people behind bars in Georgia are in the state prison system. And we know that jails were designed to be very short-term stays. The impacts that that has on families, we know that even when a mother is taken away from her children for a short period of time, even for a short jail sentence, the ramifications on that family's life can be pretty, pretty severe. So where did the idea of motherhood beyond bars come from? You know, when you say 50 kids born in the jail system and, and the, excuse me, prison system, now that I know the difference, you know, it doesn't seem like it's a huge number, you know, recognizing kind of, it probably does have a big impact. Can you talk a little bit about what the impact is and why it is such a big deal and kind of where the idea of motherhood beyond bars came from? Sure. So the, the one of the big issues that we are responding to is the crisis of female incarceration in the United States. So over the last four decades, there's been a 700% increase in the number of women behind bars in the United States. The numbers for men have been declining. That, that has, and, and so we have often celebrate the fact that our incarceration rates are lowering. But that's not been true for women. We are actually locking up more women than we have over the last four decades. When a woman is arrested and she is the mother of children, her children are five times more likely to end up in the foster care system than if the father gets arrested. So what we're doing is we're taking primary caregivers of very young children and we're separating them from their families. And that results in a a, a ripple effect on families and communities. The numbers of women who are in prison who are primary caregivers of young children, the vast that's the vast majority of women in prisons, not just in Georgia, but around the country. So about 80% of women in jails are the primary caregiver of a young child when they are arrested, and about 67% of women in our prison system are the primary caregiver. And that means that the children that they leave behind are very, very vulnerable. Wow. Now, the the story of how we started, I did not found Motherhood Beyond Bars. It uh, started with a student at Rollins School of Public Health. Her name is Bethany Kotler. And she was a co-degree student in the Divinity School, at Candler, um, Candler School of Theology and Rollins. Candler often places their students in carceral settings. And she was placed at, at Helms facility, which in Georgia is where all pregnant women are held if they're in the state prison system. And she went in and realized that they were getting their constitutionally mandated health care. There were nurses on site there. They were getting visits by an obstetrician who came in, but there was no education component. There was no childbirth education. There was no pregnancy education, postpartum education. And because he was uniquely situated in between the School of Public Health and the Candler School of Theology, she decided to write a curriculum for women who were pregnant in the prison. And... She ended up dropping the Candler degree and just stuck with public health, but continued to do that class. The way our paths intersected, I was a childbirth doula for 10 years. I'm from Atlanta, grew up here, but I was really operating, was working out of Washington, D.C., and I was attending a birth at a 
very busy downtown DC hospital, a lot like Atlanta Medical Center or Grady. And I walked out of the room where I was supporting a family. And in the hallway, there was a gurney with a pair of handcuffs hanging off the side of it. And it was an image that really stopped me in my tracks. I had spent a decade supporting women in birth, teaching childbirth classes about the importance of support and empowering experience it could be. And as I was kind of contemplating that image and those handcuffs, the door of the room next to the one I was working in opened up and an armed guard walked out. And I had been doing this for a long time, but that is the first time it occurred to me that someone could be in prison and also have to deliver a baby. And I realized that likely there was a woman in the room next to mine chained to a bed with an armed guard by her side. And it's the day my world turned a little sideways. And I started looking at places in the country where it was legal to shackle women during birth and noticed that my home state of Georgia was on that list. And my husband and I had been contemplating a move back to Georgia he is also a nonprofit executive director. He's an attorney. And we knew that there was important work to do here in both of our fields of interest. So we sold our house and I sold my business and we moved back into the house that I was born in with my mom and three kids. And I started looking for people who were doing work with incarcerated pregnant women. I really just wanted to start a doula program. I wanted to attend births and be a support person for women in that scenario. And I I found Bethany and she graduated from Rollins. She had another job. She was still going into the prisons when she could. There was a small group of volunteers that were sticking with her. And she had recently received an offer to, to move to Boston and begin her PhD. And she was worried that the whole thing might fall apart. And I said, listen, I am, I'm here to do this work. If you will give me the name Motherhood Beyond Bars, which is the name that women in prison had given to that childbirth um, education class, I'll take good care of it. And that's how I became the executive director of a nonprofit organization. <laughs> it was over lunch um, and I was unpaid and there was no 501c3 paperwork filed and no board of directors, but we got to work. And um, by 2018, we were a nonprofit, we had a board, we had the paperwork in place, and we just continued doing the work, and we expanded the work. And I think most importantly, we listened very, very carefully to the women who were closest to the problem. And those were the women that were sitting in Georgia's prisons, and they told us what they wanted and what they needed and what their families were experiencing. And we've done our best to respond to those needs. Well, someone very intimately having these conversations with these women and their families and understanding the situation, maybe you could give us an idea of kind of what does it mean to be a pregnant woman in prison and kind of mm -hmm. how does that look in, a, in the state of Georgia? It's not an ideal experience. Um, women, I think I mentioned, are held at one facility. It's called Helms and all of their medical care happens there. And when it comes time to deliver, and this is, we are filming this at an interesting point in history, they um, all go to Atlanta Medical Center. And we know that that will change very soon. Atlanta Medical Center, their labor and delivery floor is planned to be, planned to start shutting down um, in mid-October. I don't think we know exactly what the plan is now for where all of these women will deliver. They um, travel to the hospital 
and no family members are supposed to know that they've left the prison facility. So they have no opportunity to have any support people there with them. They give birth on their regular labor and delivery floor. And until pretty recently, they had two hours together with their child before they were separated. We um, advocated pretty strongly for more time for women and now they have 24 hours together. I hope that continues to be the case wherever they deliver next. After that period, moms are taken what they call the inmate floor, which has been the basement of the hospital, and all babies go to the neonatal intensive care unit. They're not sick most of the time, say, thank goodness. Are they sick or yeah. just... Mm-mm. They're they not sick, the but that's, mm-hmm, that's where they go. And about 48 hours after birth, the mothers are returned to prison, not to the small facility that they just came from, but the largest women's prison in the state, which is called Lee Arendale State Prison. And they leave the hospital almost almost always without having received a shower. They, the inmate floor doesn't have a shower facility for them. They don't have a change of clothes. They don't have extra pads. They don't have extra underwear. They really leave in the clothes that they came in, which are prison-issued clothing. And they um, go back to prison. And men, most of the time, they're in an uh, infirmary for a period of time for observation once they get there. The baby's journey uh, then um, takes a turn. So the women are, when they are pregnant, they identify a caregiver, someone that will pick up the baby from the hospital. And almost everyone is able to identify a family member or friend to do that. They, women know that if their children enter the child protective services world, we call that DFACS, the Division of Family and Children's Services. And if they enter that world from birth, the chances of them losing their parental rights um, are much, much higher um, than if the child goes with a family member. That just makes sense. So they, they find a family member. Uh, when Once the mom is back in prison, the NICU staff calls that number and says there's a baby to pick up. And prior to our support program uh, for caregivers, the hospital told us that sometimes they would make that phone call and the person on the other end of the line would not know what they were talking about. They didn't know that they were going to be a caregiver. And the forms that moms fill out, it's about a half sheet piece of paper that just the mom puts a name and a phone number and an address down. And if you know the name and the phone number and the address of your mailman, you can put that name and phone number down. That's who the hospital will call to come pick up the baby. So they come to the hospital, hopefully they have what they need, which is a car seat, um, and they walk out. And there is no organization or state agency that follows up with them. I will say there was not prior to to Motherhood Beyond Bars. And basically these infants just disappeared from view. The only people that knew what was happening to them were their moms and their caregivers. And if the moms and the caregivers weren't talking to one another, that meant that the moms had no idea what was happening to their babies. If they couldn't afford a phone call home or no one was putting money on them, their books for phone calls or emails, mothers just returned to prison and sometimes weren't even sure that someone picked up their baby at the hospital. So were there instances of that where just, you know, Atlanta Medical is calling and all of a sudden there's no one to pick up a baby because there's no warning that, you know, you're in labor, you're going to need to take a baby home from a hospital in 48 hours. Sadly, that happened. It um, sounds and like, those children end up in foster care. Yeah, as I say, it sounds like there was a huge gap in kind of the Atlanta system or in the Georgia system of these women behind bars and kind of 
securing the safety of these children. That's what we recognized. And that's why, I mean, when I go back to talking about the importance of listening to women and understanding their experiences, it was because we listened very carefully to what women were telling us and realized at some point, because we were listening to multiple women's stories and we were asking about their children, we were asking about where, you know, what kind of contact they had had with their babies. At some point I realized, I think I'm the only person in the state of Georgia that knows collectively where these infants are at the moment. Um, And that's because I was hearing from moms and the mothers were then telling me stories about calling home and hearing their baby crying in the background and the caregiver saying, oh, it's just, it's a diaper rash, but they would hear it over and over and over again. And these mothers felt so helpless um, because they couldn't send money home. There's no paid labor in the Georgia Department of Corrections. They can't send money home. There's no way for them to make money. And meanwhile, they're hearing their caregiver on the other end of the line saying, I don't have money to change the baby's diaper. I don't have money for diapers. I don't have money for formula. And we were hearing this from the mothers. And in late 2019, the moms were telling us, please help take care of our babies. Well, there were two rules that the Department of Corrections set for us that made it very difficult for us to move forward with that plan. One, we were not allowed to have any communication with family members of women that we were working with inside prison. So they were saying, reach out to our caregivers. And we were saying, we can't. The Department of Corrections won't let us talk to them. Otherwise, we can't come in here anymore. And then the other thing that they were asking us to do was, please help me reunify with my kids when we come when I get out of this place. And then we, we, our hands were tied on that, too, because the Department of Corrections wouldn't let us have a program with women inside prison once they came out. We weren't allowed to see them in both places. And at the end of 2019, we made a decision to stop physically walking into prisons so that we could do the programs that the women asked us to do. So we do not walk into prisons anymore. We do not host those postpartum support groups because the work that we were being called to do on the outside seemed more important to the women that we were serving inside. And we still have a lot of communication. I mean, you were, you were, we, we just, we were just interrupted by a, with a phone call from um, someone who's currently in prison. We have a lot of contact with women in prison. Unfortunately, we're not able to see them face to face, but we feel like we are doing exactly what they asked us to do. So essentially you've had to pivot to kind of the area of greatest need, it sounds like is more mm-hmm. kind of not the physical, let me support you while you're in prison, but let me be the facilitation of, mm-hmm. of the support for your child. We, when we were walking into prisons, we focused a lot on um, centering the identity of mother or the women who were inside. They get called a lot of things in prison. One thing they rarely hear is mom, mama, mother. They get called numbers, use maybe last names if they're lucky. So really centering that identity for them, which we feel like we are still able to do because we are really encouraging their participation in the life of their child. But we are also responding exactly to what what they want in the world, which is so much as what every mother wants in the world is for their child to be safe and supported by a loving community that cares about them. These were women who felt that their stories and their children did not matter to anyone. And why would they? You know, literally, I just told you a story like 
someone gets picked up at the hospital, they walk out, they disappear from view. No one ever called to check in on them. No one ever said, hey, you know what? You're buying your formula out of pocket. There's a government program that supplies that for families like this. We were the one on the other end of the line telling caregivers, you, you can apply for WIC for this child. It's the women, infants, and children, you do not have to buy a $50 thing of formula out of your own pocket. Um, so why would these women have thought anyone cared about them? The evidence was clear. They didn't. Or even just making sure that the baby is going to a safe home with mm-hmm. running water and power and a place to sleep. It sounds like, you know, I think when we all think of someone in prison, we think, oh, they must have done something horrible. You know, on average, what are the women that you're we're interacting with? What are they in prison for? Is it, you know, major felonies? Mm-hmm. Kind of the vast majority of women in prison are there uh, for drug-related crimes and property offenses. I won't say vast majority. There are um, there are violent offenses. I think what's um, important and an important gender differentiation. I don't even know. I've I've seen enough people in prison now and heard enough stories from men and women in prison to know that about 90% of women in prison um, self-identify as victims of trauma. And when I um, sat in postpartum support groups, there were about, there were 14 women in one of my postpartum groups one day. And they were telling, I was hearing a lot of stories about their childhood and about why their parents were absent from their childhood. I kept hearing a lot about prison. And I just asked one day, 14 women sitting here, how many of you had a parent in prison when you were growing up? And 13 hands went up. And I realized that I was just looking at a circle, a cycle of women who had experienced the trauma of incarceration as a child and then just pass that on to the next generation because every single one of them had just delivered a baby within that year. And if I needed a, a more perfect kind of visual representation of the work to be done, we are here to break that cycle. I would like to know that this mom is the last generation that will see the inside of a prison wall. I know I'm not naive. I know that a lot of these generational traumas extend beyond our ability to fix, but I know that we can, I know that we can make the road easier. I know that we can lighten the load for some of these families and connect them to resources, mental health resources that exist. Infant mental health is a huge need. Um, I'm pleased to see that it's getting, it's getting some attention, but we are working with infants that are, um, take their first breath and then death is stacked against them. Yeah. So how many infants would you say have gone through the program and how many mothers since you've been, you were originally kind of. Since we've started, there have been about 500 women that have come through our program in prisons, pregnancy education, postpartum support. We do pregnancy education and support for any woman serving a sentence on probation or parole. So just before you, um, we got on the, the phone today, I was um, doing pregnancy education with a woman who is on parole, who uh, just graduated from a rehab um, in Athens, Georgia, and she's pregnant. She just sent me pictures of her ultrasound today. Um, so our, our program extends beyond 
folks who are currently incarcerated, any woman that's justice involved, we have a very wide definition of what that is. We are we are doing important. I haven't mentioned our research initiative with Harvard School of Public Health, but we have enrolled almost 50 families in this really groundbreaking research that looks at the impacts of incarceration on infants. We're doing that in collaboration with Harvard. And this will be the first time in the country that anyone has ever studied the impacts of incarceration on our youngest children. Um, So we have a pretty strong cohort for that right now. We've been collecting data for two years. We will just collect data as long as this is an issue. Um, And we will probably expand that research to other states as well. Are you guys looking to expand beyond Georgia? Or are you kind of sticking with just Georgia right now? Because it sounds like at least the state of Georgia is keeping you busy. There are three of us on staff at the moment. So yeah, Georgia keeps us keeps, keeps us busy. Uh, we were just in Augusta, Georgia yesterday, tracking down caregivers. I mean, we, we found one in a parking lot, a gas station parking lot. We went to Sam's Club and found another one. We, you know, we, uh, yeah, state of Georgia keeps us busy. There, um, we know that this need exists. Uh, we have a five-year strategic plan. We are looking at expanding right now. We're we are doing the work that needs to be done here at home, and really happy to be able to share our learning and our experiences with uh, folks who are doing this work in other states as well. And each state will have a unique system. That's one of the things about a state prison system. In Georgia, one of the things that has made it easier for us is that all pregnant people are held at the same facility. So we we know where they are and we kind of can find them. In other states, women are spread out throughout the prison system and it's harder to find them and therefore the caregivers are spread out too. We've kind of liked this funnel of all caregivers at least arriving at the same hospital to pick up a baby if we need to give them a car seat if we need to make sure that they have a pack and play. Um, Every caregiver leaves the hospital with something we call our begin box, which is a huge box of supplies. It has everything that an infant you would need to care for an infant uh, for about the first two weeks of life is in this box. So the hospital has been storing for those for us and making sure that every caregiver walks out with one. And that way we just know that even if a caregiver had very little warning felt overwhelmed by the task, didn't have extra money that week from their paycheck to buy diapers, they're not going to need to worry one minute. Everything is in the box. So it sounds like the the change with the Atlanta medical system is going to be a, a kind of a huge impact. You know, have you, do you know where that's going to shift in the fall or have an idea of what the next step's going to be? We will be waiting and watching just like all the all the women that we work with, my, uh, you know, of course, I think everyone is assuming that Grady will just absorb all of our most vulnerable <laughs> patients in the world. Um, Grady is full. I, you know, the Georgia Department of Corrections will will keep a tight lid on where they're sending women. I, they think it's the best kept secret in the world, like <laughs> where women are delivering. It is not. I feel like the shackles um, on beds and the armed guards might be a giveaway. Yeah, you know, there is not a more effective kind of insider communication network than women in prison. I am here to tell you, like, every woman in there knows where she's delivering and every caregiver knows before we call them for the first time where they're going to pick up a baby. 
So my guess is that the, the women um, that we work with will be telling us pretty quickly what they are hearing on the inside about where they're delivering their baby. And my best guess is that it will be Grady. I, I don't know how Grady's going to manage. And I, I was quoted in the AJC, I think last week, I, I like to be optimistic, but I assume that for this population of women, things can always get worse. And so we have made some real strides at Atlanta Medical Center. There are some compassionate nurses there. There are some, the NICU staff has been amazing uh, working with us. And in that sense, we'll just take the time to build relationships wherever they end up. We believe in the power of relationships and we will take the time necessary to build those with wherever women. So for anyone listening, you know, what, what would be the one thing that you'd, that you'd want them to take away from our conversation? And that's kind of, here's what I want you to remember. It is easy to forget that there are women in our communities that have this experience. The, the prison system is designed to be opaque and obscure. They would almost prefer that we forget about the people that we send behind bars. It's easier for them if we do. The problem is, is that these women are all attached to people outside and they're attached to children. They are attached to partners. They are attached to other family members that walk among us every day. And the ripple effects of those separations are felt by everyone. A really powerful statistic is that there is one child in every single classroom in the United States that has a parent behind bars. Statistically, there are some classrooms that have a lot more than one, but that's a lot of kids that have experienced a lot of trauma by being separated from a parent. We spend a lot of money locking mothers up, locking fathers up, and we get very little return on that investment. Instead of welcoming home parents who have the confidence and the skills that they need to come back to their communities and back to their families and be connected and healthy and whole, we return people who are worse than they were when they went in. And so I, I would just ask for people not to forget that this is that this is an issue that affects us all. It affects your kids sitting in a classroom. The kid that's acting out, that's disrupting class. Now maybe someone that's just missing their mom. I just get really emotional thinking about that. Um, it's it's really easy to lock people behind a wall with a lot of um, prison wire and just forget they exist. But they come back, and their kids are here. And I think we owe it to them and to our children in our communities to uh, to create a better create better possibilities for them. Mon, as your support group showed, kind of breaking that cycle of being the next generation where you're having a parent who's incarcerated and figuring mm -hmm. out how we can kind of break that, for lack of a better word, cycle and circle. Well, if somebody wants to learn more or get involved or kind of support your efforts, what, where should they go? What should they do? We have all the social medias. So Instagram is a great place to follow us. You can find uh, stories from our clients there. Uh, you can find information about ways to get involved. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, so Motherhood Beyond Bars. Uh, if you search for us, there's a website, motherhoodbeyond.org. And on that, you um, one of the things that you'll see on there is that we have published a children's book, and it's called uh, To the Earth and Back. It's a beautiful story. It's a metaphor. 
about an astronaut that gives birth on the moon and her baby has to come back to Earth while she finishes her moon mission. And it was inspired by the women that we work with. Lots of interviews with lots of currently and formerly incarcerated women. And uh, it's a beautiful story. And it's a really, I think, accessible way to even talk to very young children about what it means um, when families get separated and how far a mother's love will reach. But um, you can you can put a mama a lot of places, but she is not going to stop loving her babies. Well, Amy, thank you so much for the conversation today. I learned so much, and I'm sure everyone who, who listened did it as well. And for all of the efforts that you guys are doing, I had no idea that this was even an issue. And it's a little terrifying that we shackle women during labor in the state of Georgia. Well, one excited we we were we did pass legislation in 2019 that outlaws shackling in Georgia. Okay, good. Oh so, yes. That's let me don't do not let me leave this without saying that. So that law passed in 2019 doesn't mean that it doesn't happen because, you know, it's one thing to pass a law. It's another to make sure that people are following it. But that is something that we should celebrate. And before we leave, I also just want to say thank you to the Junior League of Atlanta for being such a tremendous partner to us. When I I don't think I've told this story before, but when I first when I got Bethany, all of Bethany's files in 2017. Um, she just sent me a Dropbox thing and there was like a little folder in there that said junior league. And I opened it up and she had just written notes about how she thought that the, that the mission of junior league and motherhood beyond bars was a good fit. And she'd never looked at getting any formal. Here's my, my little guilty secret. Like I have been playing a very long game here. <laughs> so from 2017, when I saw Bethany's notes about junior league, I agreed with her. I thought that it was a a brilliant um, opportunity for two organizations that care a lot about women and children to work together. And I am very, very grateful for the formal collaboration this year and the support from the organization. It's really put a lot of wind in our sails. Well, you're very welcome. And we're very grateful for everything that you've done. Um, so before we wrap up, just the website one more time, just in case anybody wants to check it out. Motherhoodbeyond.org. Awesome. Well, thank you, Amy. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Colleen. I appreciate it. I appreciate the offer. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of JLA Inside Out. If you have feedback, thoughts, or questions, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at insideout at jlatlanta.org.